Hey everyone, and welcome to the Living with Power Hope podcast. I'm your host, Lena Abujamra. I'm so glad you're here for another week. On this podcast, we talk about hope. We believe in hope. We love hope. We believe that change is possible and that by God's grace, everything does eventually work out for good. Today's podcast is a conversation that you're either going to love or you're going to love. I've called it Hope South of the Border, and my guest is a man that I've followed on Twitter for a while and have been admiring his work for some time. He is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization at World Relief and lives right here in Chicago area. Uh, so he's a neighbor, and uh, in his role, he helps evangelical churches to understand the realities of immigration and to respond in ways guided by biblical values, uh, which is, in my mind, uh, the most important thing about the work that he's doing. Uh, he has co-authored a book that just came out with Jenny Yang, and uh, the name of the book is Welcoming the Stranger, Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the Immigration Debate. It is a book that I know you're going to want. We're going to give away a couple copies at the end of the conversation. A little bit more about Matthew. He uh, actually has a bachelor's degree from Wheaton College, a master's from DePaul University School of Public Service. He um, uh, knows his way around uh, the immigration debate, and but also has a personal story uh, of his own family uh, coming here not too long ago. So I want you guys to get to know him, but more importantly, get to understand some of the work that he's doing in the South. I think the most riveting thing about you, Matt, though, is that you are originally from Nina, Wisconsin, which that is right. most people have no idea where that is, but I do because I'm that cosmopolitan and <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool. I'm from Green Bay, so we have a lot okay. of and, and not for originally from there. So I myself am immigrated from Lebanon. You might or might not know that. So mm-hmm. I uh, care a lot about our topic today. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm glad to hear you've heard of Nina. Some people have heard of it only if they've seen a manhole cover that is from Nina Foundry. But yeah, well, other- I don't know that I've ever looked at manhole covers so closely, but I'll take your word for it. No, we, uh, yeah, we know Nina in Wisconsin. But anyway, hey, um, you've been busy this year. Yeah, uh, to the extent that part of my work is helping churches think through immigration policy, it has been a very big, busy year because there's just been a lot of changes and a lot to try to understand and respond to. Yeah, so as it started reading your book and you talked a little bit about your own background, and I thought this would be a good sort of way to uh, bring p- people up to speed on how you ended up doing the work that you're doing. But tell me a little bit about your family. Yeah, well, um, my family, uh, I grew up in Wisconsin, and um, most of my relatives on both sides immigrated from Holland a, a number of generations back. So um, I, my parents both grew up in a part of Wisconsin where most people are Dutch and pretty proud of that background. But, you know, I'm, I'm far enough removed from that that if I thought anything about being an immigrant, it was probably mostly tied to uh, what I'd heard on television, uh, what I'd seen on the radio. We have some immigrants in Nina, but not a very large number. It's a fairly um, ethnically homogenous place. It certainly was, you know, 20 years ago when I was growing up, and um, still mostly so, a little bit less so, uh, as World Relief has resettled some refugees there in that part of the country as well. But, um, you know, I think I'm very a fairly typical white evangelical Christian who maybe hadn't had a lot of interaction with this topic beyond what I'd read in media or or on television, radio, social media, that sort of thing. But, but how did you even land a job at World Relief? Like, you know, you sort of grew up, again, very um, white, very Wisconsin, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and you ended up working in a, in a work environment that is sort of out of the box, um, especially for a conservative Christian. I imagine you went to Wien, so some relative conservatism there. And you, so, you know, I mean, so how do, you, how do you end up doing the career that you're doing before we get to even the modern day debate now? 
Yeah, well, it was actually through my time at Wheaton. Um, I did an internship with World Relief in Nicaragua, um, where, where we don't work particularly on immigration issues, but um, at the time, at least, we were you know working, working, helping people who were living in situations of poverty in rural areas. And I just really fell in love with the mission of World Relief, which is to empower the church to serve the most vulnerable, and came back to the Wheaton, Illinois area for my last year of as an undergrad, and noticed that World Relief had an office down the street. Uh, and in the suburbs of Chicago, what we do is still empowering church, the church to serve the most vulnerable, but they, we've really focused on refugees and other immigrants. So I mostly wanted to work at World Relief and wasn't that you know particularly passionate about refugee or immigration issues, but applied for a job there and actually got turned down for it, but applied for a couple others. And eventually they hired me. And that's really been my entry point. Uh, although I would say at the same time, um, I moved into an apartment complex in the suburbs of Chicago where where most of my neighbors were immigrants, um, many of them refugees who were resettled by World Relief from uh, different parts of Africa and the Middle East and Southeast Asia, many others who were immigrants primarily from Mexico. Um, and so these questions of how do you uh, think about your immigrant neighbors suddenly became like literal questions. They were my next door neighbors and they were mostly lovely people who got to be really good friends. But I still had a lot of questions about, you know, what about the ones who may not be here legally? Uh, what about, you know, those who are not Christians, who are coming from a Muslim background or other backgrounds? And how do I wrestle with all those things from a distinctly Christian perspective? So but, that really led me into the work that I do now. Well, even like when you, I mean, as a college grad, I mean, you, how old are you now, Matthew? I don't know that for sure. I'm 35 now. It's sort of a millennial, right? Isn't that where where one would put you? I mean, so you sort of have this cultural push to work in in you know socially active environments, but I mean, you certainly didn't think you were doing this for the big bucks, right? I mean, so did you feel a call no. from God? Like, what was it that you know? A lot of people graduate from college and you're sort of trying to to make it big. Was it political aspirations that drove you to this, or was there any event besides like I was in Nicaragua? Did you meet people that impacted you, or did you feel like a divine? leading of saying, I need to do something because of my faith in Christ. How did that intersect even personally for you? Yeah. You know, I think actually if I could pinpoint maybe two moments where I really felt like God sort of got my attention in a very clear way. One was as a student at Wheaton, I had a, a, a close friend um, who told me, I think I was a senior when she told me that she was undocumented. And I honestly mm -hmm. didn't even understand what that meant. Um, I mean, she had grown up, she had been brought to the U.S. as a small kid to California from Mexico. Um, and I remember her sharing this with me and explaining just how much, you know, how much angst this meant for her because uh, she'd been able to go to Wheaton and do quite well there. But she at the time, you know, was not, you know, wasn't sure that she would be able to get a job after she graduated and had this risk of being deported back to a country she hadn't seen since she was a small child sort of hanging over her. Mm. In her case, it got resolved. Um, but, you know, that really started me thinking about this and putting a face on a what had been for me is more of a political issue. And, and at the same time, or around the same time, um, as a Wheaton student, even before I went to Nicaragua, I spent a summer in Costa Rica, which <laughs> uh, is a country that actually receives a lot of immigrants. There are some Costa Ricans who leave to go to the U.S. or elsewhere, but it's a host country for a lot of Nicaraguans in particular. And I spent a few months there working with a great organization called Christ for the City that was basically we were leading Bible studies in a very low-income neighborhood where most of the people were Nicaraguan immigrants with their kids. And, you know, I got to be friends with some of these families. And at the same time, I, I noticed pretty quickly that a lot of people in Costa Rica, I mean, there's wonderful Costa Rican Christians, you know, really giving very care, selflessly to care for Nicaraguan immigrants. But there's also a kind of an undercurrent in this society of a lot of suspicion of immigrants. You know, I would hear things from 
from my Costa Rican friends like, oh, those Nicaraguans are stealing jobs or they're lazy. I was never quite sure how those two went together, but or they're bringing disease or they're causing crime. And it just didn't fit with the families that I was interacting with. And I remember asking one of my friends at one point who, who's Nicaraguan. So, you know, why would you come here? It seems like you don't get treated very well and yet you work really, really hard. And why not just stay in Nicaragua? And one of them told me, you know, Matt, here we've got a little bit of food on our plate. We've got a little bit of extra money to send back to our elderly relatives, elderly parents back in Nicaragua. And that's the most that we could hope for. And that just really struck with me. I, I almost feel like God used that experience outside of my country so that when I went back to the United States, I really started to notice that, wow, a lot of the rhetoric that I hear in the United States about immigrants, maybe especially immigrants from Latin America, is really similar to what my Costa Rican friends were saying about Nicaraguans that upset me so much. But somehow I didn't hear it in the United States. It didn't occur to me that maybe it wasn't all accurate because I just didn't know the people who we were talking about. And that was part of what really I felt like God was in some ways convicting me that I had believed some things without thinking very critically about them or really doing my homework on what are the facts. And more importantly, I'd never really thought about this as a biblical issue. I mean, I grew up in a great yeah. church. I went to a great Christian college. I you know, would have thought that I was relatively biblically literate, um, but around the time I was finishing college, if you would have asked me, what does the Bible say on this topic? I think I would have had a hard time coming up with anything very specific. Right. And, and so as I moved into this neighborhood, as I started working at World Relief, I really dove into the scriptures looking, you know, what does the Bible say on this? And I was almost shocked to find how much the Bible says very specifically to the theme of immigration. I mean, the word for an immigrant in the, in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, the word ger, appears 92 times in the Old Testament. Right. Like this isn't just like one or two verses that I missed somewhere. It's actually a pretty frequent theme. And of course there's different things there, but the most common theme is God says, God mentions immigrants alongside orphans and widows as vulnerable groups of people whom he loves, whom he commands his people to love. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that doesn't answer any of the complex questions, but well, what about if some people uh, entered the country unlawfully or, you know, overstayed a visa, or the legal questions, the economic questions, those are all really important. And there's biblical principles that we can prudentially apply there. But our starting point needs to be a place of, of loving vulnerable people and recognizing that God loves those people and, um, and, when, and died for those people you, as well. When did you notice that the, this message that seems, again, to you, you're reading, you're learning, you're like, man, this seems so obviously biblical. When, when did it first, when did you have an aha moment of being like, oh, wow, not everybody in the church sees eye to eye on this? Yeah, you know, I have a very distinct uh, memory of early on in my time at World Relief, I was asked, uh, well, one of our local church partners, I won't name which one because this might embarrass them, but <laughs> they uh, they asked World Relief, hey, could you have a guest speaker come and lead an adult education class on the topic of immigration? And this was 2006. At the time, President Bush was pushing a, a immigration reform bill. So immigration was in the news. It was sort of a hot topic, maybe not as hot as it is now, but, yeah. um, you know, it was it was something people had strong opinions on. And I, you know, sort of uh, prepared a little bit for that talk, but honestly, I wasn't very well prepared. And I went and I remember I was in the basement of this church and kind of gave my talk and people, a few people received it really well, but I remember a few particular people did not like what they heard. And, and also I wasn't totally ready for their questions. They asked questions and I felt like, I don't think that's right, but I wasn't quite sure why it wasn't right. Or I don't think that scripture passage really applies in this situation, but you know, I hadn't done my own homework sufficiently to be able to respond. So I remember I went back looking for, there's gotta be some good, you know, evangelical Christian book on this topic. And at the time in 2006, there, there really wasn't, I mean, there was, I could find sort of Catholic social teaching on this, which there's some, certainly some good things to glean there or, 
you know, older books from the 80s, but it was like there wasn't much on the contemporary situation. And, and that was really what led me and eventually with my colleague, Jenny Yang, to, to write the Welcoming the Stranger book, the first edition that came out um, more than 10 mm-hmm. years ago, because we felt like we needed a resource uh, to help evangelical Christians think in distinctly biblical ways and distinctly missional ways, recognizing that God is at work through the movement of people, drawing people to himself mm-hmm. about this complex topic of immigration, which especially in the U.S. context is so often a political issue. And, and I don't want to dismiss that the policy issues are important. But I worry that we start with it as a political issue sometimes, even in the church, and we never get to it as a biblical issue and a missional issue, which is where I think our thinking needs to start. Well, 10 years ago, the first version of the book comes out, the first edition, and then 10 years later, you guys have a revised or newer version. How has the public, or let me specify the Christian or evangelical uh, reception of your book been 10 years ago versus this year? Has there been more tension and more opposition or more openness? Yeah, I'd say paradoxically, um, sort of both. (laughs) I mean, there has, um, for example, it was so much easier to find people to endorse this book, like well-known Christians who who 10 years ago didn't have an opinion on immigration or maybe had one, but were not willing to state it publicly because it was so... It just wasn't something evangelical Christians were talking about. And I should say, especially white evangelical Christians, Latino evangelicals have not had the the luxury of not having this conversation. It's been on their agenda for a long time. Um, But, you know, fast forward 10 years and there's almost every major evangelical denomination has made a statement on immigration and even often on immigration policy in the last 10 years, because it really has risen to the surface as an issue that is directly affecting evangelical churches in the United States. So in that regard, I think, you know, we had a lot more to say about how the church is responding in really positive ways to the arrival of immigrants and um, to the United States. I do think in terms of the politics, it's it's gotten harder. I mean, it's I mean, the sort of policy solutions that we advocate in the book, which, again, at the time we were writing them were very similar to what George W. Bush was advocating. So I wouldn't consider them a sort of, you know, fringe liberal position. Um, but I, I can't say in good faith that it's exactly what President Trump is advocating right now. So there's been a, a shift yeah. even within the Republican Party. In the Democratic Party, we've seen shifts in terms of approach to immigration policy as well. And one of the big changes that we've seen in the last 10 years that we talk about in the new edition of the book is, is refugee resettlement. A decade ago, right. we didn't really spend a lot of time talking about refugees just because refugees were almost like the easy part of our work. Uh, refugees, right. by definition, come to the United States with legal status. They're invited by the U.S. government before they arrive. They're feted. And by definition, they all have a, a really compelling story. The definition of a refugee is it's someone who has fled a well-founded fear of persecution. So a lot of them are actually persecuted Christians. Uh, others politi- persecuted for a political association or for their ethnicity. And I, I think a decade ago, we we presumed that that was sort of an obvious thing, that the church would want to help refugees. And in many ways, right. it felt like that was true. But as, as we're all aware, refugees in particular have become controversial in the last probably four years or so. Um, you think because of like, do you think this had more to do with like the fear of terrorism or was it just a political climate that's changed in the last four years? Um, I think it's, it's a fear of terrorism and a lot of misconceptions about who refugees are. I mean, even the, that, that association with terrorism with refugees comes from the idea that refugees are all Muslims from the Middle East, which on one, of course, it's important to know that not all Muslims in the Middle East are terrorists. In fact, a very small yeah. percentage would even be tempted towards that. But also most refugees in the world are not from the Middle East. And especially most refugees coming to the United States. Uh, some have been from Iraq and from Syria in the last 10 years. But the number one country of origin for refugees to the United States uh, has been Burma or Myanmar in Southeast Asia, which is a 
primarily Buddhist country, but the significant majority of the refugees, about 70% have been Christians and Christians who are actually mm. persecuted for their Christian faith by the Burmese government, um, as, long, well, as well as for their ethnic minority status. It's kind of a combination of those factors. But I, I think that most evangelicals don't realize that. So it's sort of a, on our part, we're both saying, you know, you're a little confused about who refugees coming to the United States are. And a lot of Americans don't realize the vetting process that every refugee goes through and really how successful that vetting has been. But also we want to, we do want to make the case for welcoming and loving our Muslim refugee neighbors as well. Um, we think that they are people made in the image of God, that they are neighbors whom we're called to love. And, and we've seen people make the decision to follow Jesus as, when they are loved well by teams from local churches in the United States. And, uh, you know, these are people largely coming from context with serious restrictions on religious freedom into a country where we are blessed with religious freedom, where we are free to share our faith well, and, and they're free to receive it or to reject it. We're not, you know, tricking anyone into and, becoming and, Christian. And so but Helping us understand also the impact, like things have changed in the last few years. So number wise, yeah. so even as a world relief has, I mean, I know there was a point where even your numbers of welcoming refugees here, I mean, your work has also been impacted in a sense. How many refugees used to come to the United States versus now? Like, give us an impact, a sense of that. Yeah, so at, at a national level, World Relief is usually responsible for about 10% of the refugees that come in. We're one of nine agencies nationally. But at the national level, you know, in 2016, there was almost 100,000 refugees who came to the United States. I think it was 96,000 and change. Um, and, and just to interrupt for a second, what is this compared to other, like, where were we ranking at that time in terms of, were we the number one yeah. leading country? So we were certainly okay. the number one in terms of total refugees that we were resettling. Uh, so that doesn't include those coming in requesting asylum status. So Europe would have outranked us in terms of those numbers. But in terms of like proactive, we have invited these people to come because we've considered them overseas and they are refugees. The U.S. has been the number one country in that regard for a long time, not per capita. So if you look at like Sweden or Canada, they're actually sure. doing more for a much smaller population. But the U.S. has always led the way in terms of total numbers. And that actually changed in 2018. Again, the U.S. took in about 96,000 sure. refugees in 2016. In 2018, it was around, it was fewer than 25,000. So a really dramatic decline in just wow. two years. And for the first time, Canada resettled more refugees than the U.S. did that year, um, closer to 30,000. So even with a population that's one-ninth of what the U.S. population is, and of course, a smaller economy as well, fewer jobs, um, Canada's doing more overall in terms of refugee resettlement than the U.S. did. Well, and what do you see happening in the next few years? Well, uh, unfortunately, the trend is seems to be on a downward trend. This year, it'll probably be roughly the same as, as last year. But the, the president has the authority to set the ceiling on refugee resettlement on an annual basis. That's under the Refugee Act of 1980. And um, we're, you know, there's some credible reports that the numbers being recommended to the president at this point for, the, for, for 2020 are actually zero. Um, so we hope and pray that zero. the president will not accept that recommendation. Um, we, we're really praying for the president that he would, you know, he has the authority to to say to his advisors, no, we think it's important to take refugees. And one thing we've really, we do want to help people realize is this is also impacts persecuted Christians in very significant ways. Again, because if you look at the refugee resettlement program over the last decade, there have been more people coming um, from a Christian background of one sort or another than of any other single country. And um, yeah. not all the so the percentage of those 100,000, like what percent was Christian roughly? If you were uh, it's gonna, in between, not that I think it matters, but you know, like if you were going to say Yeah, that. it was just around 40%. Um, 
And and then if you go, that was actually sort of slightly lower than some other years that happened in 2016. Um, but overall, it's not quite 50%, but it's the plurality. So more than, you know, any other single. I you tell the person, there's people listening who are probably going, oh, fine. You know, like, what's the big deal? Like, we'll be Christians. Like, there's a lot of people in the U.S. who needs Christ's love. Why are we bringing in outsiders? Like, you know, sort of that classic, like, it shouldn't make a difference to me as an individual Christian here in the U S I can still love others. Like why is that? Why is, is not bringing in any refugees a bad yeah. thing in your mind? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, there's a few reasons. First of all, I don't want to take away at all from the important call that we have to care for vulnerable people in our own community and reaching the lost in our own community. Of course we should do those things. But I think from a Christian perspective, it's hard to suggest that our, our, call to love our neighbor ends at our national boundaries. I mean, if you look at the at Jesus's parable yeah. of the Good Samaritan, um, it was a story of someone who showed compassion to a person who was in need. And that person in need happened to be of a different nationality, a different religious tradition. I mean, the Samaritan not just was not just a different religious tradition than the presumably Jewish person beaten up on the side of the road to Jericho. It was a despised religious tradition, uh, a heretical religious tradition. And yet Jesus right. makes that Samaritan the hero of that story, the model of what it is to love our neighbors. So I, I don't think we have the biblical option to say we're called to love our neighbors as long as they were born in the United States. I mean, that's it's really hard to conclude right. that from Jesus's words. So that's part of it from the church's perspective. I do think on a, in terms of sort of a policy perspective, our ability to to minister to those vulnerable neighbors is is cut off when our government decides we no longer want to accept refugees. And that's something I mean, we've been taking refugees as the United States throughout our history. It's a part of our national story. If you go back to 1980, when the Refugee Act was actually passed into law and kind of formalized that process, we had more than 200,000 refugees come to the United States that year. And interestingly, a lot wow. of them were, were Vietnamese. They were largely not Christians. They were largely Buddhists or animists. And you fast forward, you know, three to four decades, and uh, if you look at the Vietnamese in the United States, either those who came as refugees or their family members who came to be reunited with them, they're significantly more likely to be Christians than Vietnamese in Vietnam. And I think a big part of that, I mean, some of it is there was Christians who were forced to flee Vietnam, but most of it is counted is, is the fact that people who were not Christians when they got here were welcomed by local churches, were loved and served by local churches, and the 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 long-term effect of that is a vibrant Christian community among Vietnamese, what are now Vietnamese Americans, very proudly American citizens in most cases. And there's also, I mean, there's an economic benefit to that too. If you look at the Vietnamese in the United States today, who almost entirely came through that refugee process or through subsequent family reunification, they have higher average incomes than the average American citizen. They're less likely to live in poverty. I mean, they're, they're really an economic success story. And I think that there's that potential yeah. I mean, not that the economics are the top driver for us from a Christian perspective, but but that's a big concern for a lot of Americans. There's that potential for for other refugee right. groups as well if they have the opportunity to to be welcomed and embraced by local churches and by the American community as a whole. So, uh, just one other thing I would say is, I mean, in terms of right now, who's coming? I think we have a particular obligation to, for example, Iraqi and Afghans who serve the U.S. military and as a result are being persecuted in their countries of origin. Right. You know, they served as translators and now it's terrorist groups going after them. We have a moral obligation there that we are not living up to if we say zero refugees. And and to Well, I think, well, besides that, I mean, like, it's funny because I do, obviously, you might know a little bit about yeah. my work. I do a lot of refugee work in Lebanon. And I mean, we're, lead, you know, people yeah. are coming to know Jesus. Now they're persecuted for yes. receiving Jesus. And so what now you, 
I mean, they're waiting to get papers to go live somewhere so that they don't get killed for the faith. There are brothers and sisters in Christ. So there's a lot of layers to that that I think one has yeah. to think through. Besides the fact that even in Lebanon, I mean, they're not legally in Lebanon. They're illegal, which brings us really where I want to spend the rest of our conversation. Because um, as if this isn't controversial enough, yeah. I want to move to some really controversial stuff. What in the world's happening? Yeah, no, great Florida? question. And it is, there are some interesting parallels to, you know, what is happening between the Middle East and, and Europe, and then what's happening on our continent uh, between Central America and yeah. Mexico and the United States. So what we've seen um, in terms of the U.S.-Mexico border in the last uh, let's say the last decade is some really important changes. And one of those changes is a decade ago, most of the people being apprehended trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border unlawfully were Mexican. And most of them were single adults, or if not, maybe they were married, but they left their spouse or children back in Mexico. They were coming to earn money and support them from here. And uh, most of them were trying to sneak past the border patrol. You know, they were trying to evade law enforcement, mm. which is really the, we've built an infrastructure, our government has built an infrastructure of, of security fences and technology and border patrol agents to stop people from sneaking into the country. Um, we've done that actually pretty effectively in the last 10 years. Still more work to be done, but a lot has, mm -hmm. of money has gone into that. Well, the problem is that's not the problem. That's not the challenge facing the border patrol right now. Uh, it's not people who are coming from Mexico trying to sneak into the country. First of all, it's people largely from El Salvador, um, Guatemala, and Honduras, so no longer from Mexico primarily. It is people who are um, mostly families or even unaccompanied children. So about nearly 40% of the people apprehended at the border this year have been children under the age of 18. And again, some of them are actually unaccompanied, but most of them are in family units with their parents. And the big change is people are mostly looking for the Border Patrol. So some of them are applying for asylum at the port of entry. So they walk up over the bridge and at the when they get to the basically the front door, they say, I'd like to request asylum. But we've done a new policy in the last few years called metering, where instead of processing that asylum request, we tell people, sorry, we're full. It might take you a few weeks or it's gotten up to a few months. At this point, it's four or five months in some of those ports of entry. Um, so they do? sit around on the Mexican side of the border, or a bunch of them have figured out that they could go across the border unlawfully and look for the border patrol and request asylum, you know, out in the middle of the desert, because our laws allow you to request asylum there as well. Now, it's still unlawful to cross the border. It's a misdemeanor offense or can be a misdemeanor offense, but it is still legal to request asylum, even if you're not at a port of entry. Our laws say that very explicitly. Yeah. So now... So now what happened? So, you know, the news stories where you see the kids in cages or people, you know, who are like the, who, what, yeah. are, where is that? Like, tell me a so little the, bit more about the, that. You know, the way people have described as kids in cages, those are children who are usually unaccompanied children. So they didn't come with a parent. Or in a few cases, they did come with a parent or with, let's say, grandparent, and they were separated from them. That's not happening at a wide scale of the way it was last summer, but it's still happening in some cases. So those kids who are considered unaccompanied, they are under the law, under the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act of, 20, of 2008, they're supposed to be transferred over to Health and Human Services within 72 hours. And the reason Congress wrote that law was we pretty much all would agree that those Border Patrol holding cells are not ideal for kids. They weren't made for kids, and they're sure. just not adequate. Well, um, it's a little bit, you know, there's a little bit of blame game happening between different parts of the government, whether this is, you know, this is... Health and Human Services fault yeah. or Homeland Security's fault. But what is clear is, especially earlier this summer, people were not being turned over in 72 hours. In fact, many of them were, a lot of kids were waiting for a number of weeks 
um, in these border patrol heading stations. One of the really kind of infamous one was in Clint, um, Clint, Texas, not far from El Paso. Um, you have a border patrol station that's set up to hold up to 105 kids or, or people, actually. It's not just kids. In June, um, it was holding more than 600 at a time. And that's where we saw some um, I haven't been into that facility, but I, I have spent a pretty good amount of time in the El Paso area. Um, they don't let many people into those facilities. Um, and I will say, we have reason to think that the situation is mm. there in that facility now. There's not nearly as many kids now as we're recording this as there were a, a couple months ago. Although part of that is people, it was, I mean, the longstanding process has been if you yeah. request asylum and you're a family, they give you an initial, what's called a credible fear interview to see if you have a good chance of winning your legal case under U.S. law. If you have a decent chance, sometimes adults would sometimes be detained indefinitely, but usually families um, would be released with an ankle bracelet on mom or dad to make sure that they show up for court. And that's kind of been the process. And people would kind of distribute throughout the United States waiting for their court date, um, usually relying on friends or family or sometimes local churches to help support them. That was the process. And then beginning around June, uh, they shifted to a policy that they call remain in Mexico, or sometimes it's called the Migration Protection Protocols, which I think is a bit of a misnomer. Um, but basically now mm -hmm. the vast majority of people who show up through Mexico to request asylum are being turned over back to Mexico to wait for their full court. Uh, they are relying on local then? churches and um, other nonprofits to help basically provide shelter in Mexico. But there's just nothing Mexico. like adequate capacity. I mean, we have tens of thousands of people who have been turned back in the last few months. Is it that there's a bigger volume of people coming because the problems are greater in the south of the border? You know, countries that are that are that are, or you know, what is it that's? How does it become a crisis? It's a great. Yeah, that's a super good question. And the hard answer to that question is there's not a single factor. I mean, it is absolutely true that the reason I think we see people coming from El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala and not from Mexico or Costa Rica or, yeah. you know, uh, or Canada is is related to violence um, primarily, although not exclusively. Um, so, for example, if you look at the homicide rate in El Salvador, for example, in uh, the last data I've seen on this is from 2016. Um, the homicide rate in El Salvador was 82.8 for wow. 100,000 inhabitants. For comparison, it was about five, five and a half per 100,000 inhabitants in the United States. So you're, I mean, we have violence problems in the U.S. We're all aware of that, but yeah. it's 16 times worse in El Salvador. And it's particularly bad if you happen to be a 16-year-old yeah. boy being recruited into a gang where the gang says, and that's where most of the violence is coming from is these really horrific gangs where a gang says, you're going to join mm -hmm. our gang or we're going to kill you. And a lot of, one thing I think gets lost from or a lot of American Christians is a, a very significant percentage of the people making a really difficult decision to flee are very strong mm -hmm. Christians. I mean, those three countries of El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala are three of the foremost evangelical countries in Latin America. And of course, most of the rest are Catholic. Um, so they all would you know, be in a, some sort of Christian, or not all, but 80 plus percent are in some sort of a Christian tradition. But a lot of them are really vibrant believers who are bringing their strong faith with them. And that's part of, frankly, why some of them were unwilling to join a gang, because they believe in that biblical command not to kill people. Yeah. And they, you know, they aren't going to sacrifice their values on that. But some of them move somewhere else in the country to escape, and then the gang catches up with them there, and some have made the decision to come. Now, I also want to be really clear to say, there are other people, and I've met people with that story of fleeing very serious violence. There are also people who are fleeing yeah. extreme poverty, and that's not going to qualify you for asylum under U.S. law. 
Um, the law is you should you have the right to to asylum to stay lawfully in the United States if you have a credible fear of persecution on account of your race, your religion, your political opinion, your national origin, or your social group. That's what U.S. law says. And there's people who really don't meet that definition. Now I'm sympathetic yeah. to their their plight, but um, they're not going to qualify for asylum. They wouldn't under any past administration, and they won't under this one. Um, but I'm concerned that we're making it so hard for people to even get to that vetting process by making them wait in Mexico, where it's very difficult to to find yeah. a legal counsel, cool. which is you know the best predictor if you're going to win an asylum case is if you have a lawyer or legal representative or not. You gave us a sort of a sense with the refugees, like 100,000 used to come in, now 25, maybe going to zero. Like, tell us some numbers, do you, if you know them. Like, how many people used to be allowed to be seeking asylum versus then versus now? Like, what what are the what are we looking at? How massive is the problem? Is it 100,000 people? Is it 500,000? Is it 10? You know? Yeah. So that's a really great question. For, in terms of who's allowed to come, that's one of the big distinctions is there is no limit on how many people can apply for asylum. Okay. And, and that's one of the challenges in some sense, because, um, you know, we have a lot more people coming and the law says that if you meet the legal definition of a refugee, there's no limit on how many people we should be allowing in. And those laws go back to a time, uh, basically, uh, after World War II, when the United States, along with a lot of other countries, basically felt really badly that we had turned away Jewish people fleeing Germany and turned them back and said, sorry, go back to Germany. And many of them were killed in the Holocaust. Mm. And after that experience, the United States government, along with most other countries in Europe, said, wow, we're not going to do that again. That was a mistake. From here on out, if you get to the United States, and you do have to get to the United States to request asylum, you can't apply for it, you're consulate abroad. If you get to the United States, and you can prove that you have a credible fear of persecutions for one of these reasons under the law, we will not send you back. Wow. And so that's been our law for a long time. And, and um, I think it's a really important law. It's, you know, we shouldn't send people back to be persecuted. But we haven't, at the same time that we've invested a lot in infrastructure and, and personnel to keep people from sneaking into the country, which I think is appropriate. I'm not for open borders. I think we should know who's coming in out of the country and we should keep bad people out. We've invested in that process, but we've not invested in the capacity to vet asylum seekers. That is to say, to process claims on a timely basis. So, I mean, the number of people showing up at the U.S.-Mexico border is way up this year um, compared to to past years. Um, so just for example, in um, in July of 2019, there was about 71,000 people apprehended at the U.S.-Mexico border. Now, in one month. Um, and it actually it peaked back in May at 130,000. Now, not all of those individuals are requesting asylum. Some of them are being caught trying to sneak in or being yeah, caught yeah, and have... Yeah. You know, they don't have any case, so they're turned their way. But if, uh, the majority of them are, I've been told, are filing asylum requests or saying they, they have a fear of persecution. Um, and just, again, of the uh, 130,000 individuals who were apprehended in May of 2019, 85,000 of them were belonging to a family that was apprehended together. So that's a significant majority. I see. Well, what do you think of that criticism of people who say, well, the kids are you know, they're not real kids. They're like bringing them in so that they can come in as, you know, so they pose as their kids. Like you'll hear a lot of people say that. Is that, I mean, is that fact? Is it just- so the, the challenge is I was, you can always find a few anecdotal outliers of that being true, but it is right. not in any way the majority of cases or even a significant minority right. of cases. Um, the vast, vast majority are actual families. 
And and they right. usually come with evidence of that, with birth certificates and that sort of things. And, and we have you know the capacity to verify documents. And when there's any question if a kid is really with his parent, that's some of the separations that we've seen. And one of the debates that's happening right. is, uh, I mean, if you go back to the summer of 2018, it was separating everyone. Like any adult that crossed the border right. unlawfully was taken from their kids. But the separations that we're still seeing are actually un- a little bit more understandable. I'm, I'm sympathetic to the challenge here. Those are some of the cases where it's not totally clear if this is actually the biological parent of this child or not. Um, and where, where this gets yeah. tricky is, well, g- grandma shows up with, you know, with her 14-year-old grandson. Well, that child was probably raised by his grandmother, but it may not have been a formal legal adoption. A lot of these countries, you know, these are very poor people right. who probably didn't have a lawyer in their country of origin. Um, now, do you take that child from his grandmother or not? That's it, right now, the policy would be yes, you do, um, because... It, well, it's hard. I mean, I'm imagining it's hard enough to process this volume of people, let alone all of the caveats that come with that. So, I mean, I guess it, it's overwhelming to hear, but like even bringing it back home a little, like what are some points where the church, the American church can do maybe something here? Like like what I saw the Lebanese yeah. church do. They were illegal immigrants who came in and they rolled up their sleeves. Not everybody did it, yeah. but some did. And the ones who have gotten involved. So what can we do here? Well, first of all, I think it's really important to say that the church, especially in border communities like El Paso or San Diego or in parts of Arizona, um, in McAllen, Texas, is really has stepped up in the last year in amazing ways. Because again, going back until a few months ago, the the significant majority of asylum-seeking families were being detained for a few days, and then they were being released with that ankle bracelet on the parents. And when they're released, it really went to the, I mean, there was a network of more than 20 churches, for example, in El Paso, that at one point we're receiving more than a thousand people per day who wow. are being released. Um, it was one of the busiest sectors along the border. And, um, and it was a mix of, of Catholic and evangelical churches primarily that were really stepping up. And I mean, people sleeping in those churches for a night or two and getting a shower and a warm meal and, you know, someone to talk to from a local church and then getting help to find the bus station or the wow. airport and going on to relatives throughout the United States. And because those, I mean, those huge numbers of people, again, not all of them were allowed in, but a lot of them were, and they have pending court dates that in some cases are not for a year or two years. A lot of them are now in communities like Chicago and scattered throughout the United States, usually with some, you know, usually a family member or sometimes a family friend who was where, you know, the address they gave to the, to the Department of Homeland Security when they were released, where they were going. But there's local churches in all these places. I mean, they're sometimes hard to find. But if you go to a Spanish-speaking church, um, you'll probably find some people who have come in in the last year or two through that process, especially in a place with a lot of Central Americans. So, like, I live I, I live in a place where the the immigrant community is largely Mexican. We don't have a lot of Hondurans or Salvadorans, so there's not a lot of family connections there. But if you're on the north side of Chicago, there's a lot of Salvadorans and Guatemalans, and there's likely to be quite a few who have shown up there. Um, so there's that opportunity within local communities. I would say because of the Remain in Mexico policy, just in the last few months, uh, I was in El Paso with an Anglican church doing just really beautiful work and along with other churches. And they went in the course of two weeks from, you know, receiving people every, you know, on a very regular basis that were sleeping in their church to really not being needed anymore because the numbers went down by um, from a thousand per day coming into El Paso to you know, 40, 50 per day. Those were the ones who were being allowed in and the vast majority were being returned to Mexico. So I also was at a a little evangelical church in Juarez, on the Mexican side of the border. This is a church of 30 to 40 members. It's not a big church. And they have 110 people sleeping at their church every single night. 
wow. they're not people spending one or two nights and then, you know, continuing on their journey because they're stuck there for months because of this Remain in Mexico policy, waiting for their court date. Um, and by the way, most people certainly are Salvadoran or Honduran or Guatemalan, but I also met people from Congo. I met people from Cameroon. I met people um, from Venezuela and both in El and Ciudad Juarez. And then more recently, I was in Tijuana, so uh, further west on the Mexican side of the border. But there are a minority of people who have come from other countries, often have really strong asylum claims um, because of particular persecution that they've fled in their countries of origin. I mean, if, if, if you're aware of what's happening in Venezuela right now, there's a lot of very, unfortunately, very good claims to persecution coming out of Venezuela because the situation is really yeah. horrific. Yeah, yeah. But those people are stuck in that same process. And, and actually, even once they get to their court date, uh, because of another policy change, there's a new rule that says from the U.S. government that you're going to be denied asylum, no matter how legitimate your claim to persecution, if you pass through Mexico and you didn't first request Mex uh, asylum in Mexico. Oh, wow. And that may sound, well, that, you know, they'd be safe in Mexico, right? Well, yeah. maybe or maybe not, because Mexico has a lot of problems with violence as well. But the other real challenge, and this is true if it's Mexico or if it's, you know, you came through Guatemala, you're supposed to request asylum there. They don't have governmental resources to process large numbers of asylum claims. Yeah. Um, I've been told that the Mexican asylum office has a budget of about $2 million, which, I mean, we have world relief offices that I think have, you know, have bigger budgets than that. So that's for the whole country <laughs> to process, uh, you know, they're not going to be able to process tens of thousands of asylum claims. So it's, it's basically a bureaucratic dead end. And that um, at the moment, the courts have stepped in and that is not the policy in California and Arizona, but it is the policy in Texas and New Mexico. So you have to make this even more complicated, depending on which circuit court you're in, you have different rules that are applying, at least at the moment we're recording this. And that could change yeah. by the time we get off this conversation, but um, it's, it's a big mess and it's, uh, but it is there. I, I do want people to know that there are churches in Mexico in particular that are doing heroic work far beyond what I frankly have seen most American churches willing to do. Like I was in a church, a Baptist church in Tijuana where the pastor has given up his office. He hasn't well, had an office for two years because there's a dozen bunk beds in it. I mean, they have built bunk beds into his office, the youth group room, they've built bunk beds and they have 30 people sleeping in that church in Tijuana who, you know, don't, have anywhere to go and are usually not authorized to work in Mexico, which doesn't mean none of them are working, but um, it, you know, it makes it difficult. And there's a lot of violence in the border region of Mexico. There are drug cartels that unfortunately are, are very powerful and huge problems with human trafficking, especially for, for women and girls and, and boys as well. So it's, it's a very dynamic situation that I think the church here needs to be praying for and doing what we can to come alongside churches in Mexico. And at the same time, speaking into the public policy questions and our view at World Relief is we don't think everyone should be granted asylum. We think the law is really important, but at, in some ways we're making it very difficult for people to avail themselves to what is offered by U.S. law, which is a, a promise of protection for those with a credible fear of persecution for one of the reasons under our laws. Well, and, and I think I would critique, if I am to critique, the Christian world of leading with politics as opposed to leading with love. And I, I know that's a general statement, so I don't want to get listeners riled up and hang up the listen yeah. but i do think uh, we're all caught up to do that i mean i, I find myself like it, it, like if you put first of all i'm not sure that social media is the forum for these discussions because yeah. i i think that that can easily turn into a fight and so like one of the, i've got a couple quick questions here like one of the ones i guess try to you know try to make those a little bit more concise but what are some good talking points for christians so that it doesn't turn into a fight of oh you voted for this person and i voted for that moving away from that and making it about an opportunity to 
be uh, the church and to expand the Great Commission? Are there a couple of things that would be better for us to focus on in conversation? Yeah, I mean, I would always go back to the Bible. I'm mean, one of the stats that I use often when I speak at churches is this finding from a, a LifeWave research poll that we we commissioned a few years ago. We found that only 12% of evangelical Christians say they think about these issues primarily from the perspective of the Bible. The Bible came up uh, far less often than the media. And, and that's a problem if we are going to say that the scriptures are our authority right. for any tough issue. And when we go to the Bible, again, I'm not going to tell you there's a there's an immigration policy somewhere hidden in the you know, in the footnotes right. of Ezekiel or something. But there are very clear principles that God loves. Well, first of all, that all people are made in God's image. And that means that they have dignity. That's true if they are, you know, an unborn child or if they're an elderly person or if they're an immigrant or if they're a citizen. Like right. all people are made in God's image. And that gives us a, a motivation to protect human life. It also gives us a, a motivation to recognize the potential in each human life as people made in the image of a creator God. So even it's the way we talk about immigrants sometimes, I don't think yeah. honors the humanity that God has placed in them. Um, I also think, you know, I go back to that great commandment, love your neighbors yourselves. And Jesus makes very clear that that is not limited to people who look like us or believe like us or live where we do, uh, but is to be understood very broadly. And then, um, and by the way, is impending upon us whether it is safe or not. You know, for some of the work that happens in 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 Lebanon, I'm pretty sure that it's not yeah. always completely safe. Right, right. But but there but you have believers there who are faithfully loving their neighbors, not because they are convinced it's safe, but because they never thought that loving their neighbor, their, that following Jesus was going to be safe. And the irony is, it's so much safer in the United States. I mean, we have good yeah. systems in place to vet refugees. And then I would, you know, I always land on the Great Commission as well, that we're called to make disciples of all nations. And of course, we can do that by sending people to the nations, but we are missing something profound if we are so caught up in a political discussion that we don't notice that God has sent the nations to us. Right. And in the Central American context coming up to the border, actually, most of them are already believers. And, you know, we should share the gospel with people. They might share the gospel right back at us. And maybe <laughs> in some ways that we need to hear it because they have relied on faith, relied on, on prayer in ways that most Americans have never had to. But there are others who are not yet believers. And the witness of who Jesus is that they receive is going to be the witness of how the church responds. And that's even more true in a context where most people coming, you know, from a country like Iraq or Syria, even though there are many persecuted Christians, but the majority are not Christians. And there too, you're going to see people either respond to a, an impression of who Jesus is based on the way the church responds. And I always go back to Matthew chapter five, where Jesus tells his followers, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before men that they would see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. And I just hope that, that for the American church, as I pray this would be true for the church globally, that we would be that city on the hill. Uh, whether or not the United States of America wants to be that in terms of offering safety and, and opportunity, that's a political decision. But the church needs to decide that we are going to stand for being advocates for immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers. We're going to welcome them. We're going to show the love of Christ to them. And yes, we'll be advocates on the policy questions as well. But first and foremost, what is our reputation going to be for how we treat our immigrant neighbors? And I hope that we earn the right. reputation that gives glory to, to our Father in heaven. I think that's awesome. Uh, the practical last question for you, uh, Matt, and I really am so grateful for the time you're giving us. Uh, Gen Z's listening in, are there certain career paths that you would encourage if somebody's interested in doing, you know, a lot of younger generations want to work in, 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 in these types of jobs that are saving the world and making a difference, but are there specific like legal jobs or certain careers that you find would be more helpful uh, from a practical perspective moving into the next decade? Yeah, I mean, definitely we need more 
good legal professionals and especially those who can, you know, I, I love it when someone can give people good legal advice and pray with them in the same consultation because they're coming right. at that from the perspective of their faith. Um, you can do that as a lawyer for sure. One of the challenges is you'll probably leave with $150,000 of law school debt <laughs> and might not afford to be able to do immigration law because it is not the most lucrative version of law right. in the United States. But you can also... Um, there are nonprofits like World Relief that are recognized by the Department of Justice to provide immigration legal services, even with non-attorneys. So, for example, I am not an attorney, um, but I am accredited by the Department of Justice to do immigration legal work. And that's oh. what I did What I did for the first five cool. years or so I was at World Relief. Um, so that's something I think some people might want to look at. I, I, we also, frankly, we need pastors and, and Bible you know, teachers who are going to bring a distinctly biblical perspective to this topic. And I think yeah. that's so vital and for young people as well to really dive into how do we think Christianly, if that's a word, think theologically and missiologically about this topic of immigration. And because the church needs that discipleship, I think there's been something of a deficit there. And I worry that we miss out on this missional opportunity if we're not uh, adequately formed by God's word. Yeah. I want to give away a couple copies of your book, uh, Welcoming the Stranger. If you are listening and you want a copy, the book is so informative. It just covers a lot of stuff that we haven't had a chance to talk about. First two people to email me, we're going to send you the book. Um, Matt, how can people, if they have questions about any of this stuff, how can they reach you or what's the best way to connect? Yeah, probably the best way to connect is on social media. I, I'm on Twitter probably more than is a good idea for me or my family, but I'm there a lot. Um, it's at Matthew Sorn, so M-A-T-T-H-E-W. And then my last name, which is S as in Sam, O-E-R-E-N-S. That's great. Uh, hey, we're so thankful for the time, for your information. You are you have been so helpful to help us understand some of this more. Thanks for being here. I'm so happy to be here, Lena. Thanks for all that you're doing. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening today. We'll be back again next week. In the meantime, uh, don't lose hope. God is at work even when it doesn't seem like it. And uh, we're praying for you. If you need prayer, if you have questions, uh, remember to reach out, lena at livingwithpower.org. Have an awesome, awesome day.